Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. All right, today we are so, so fortunate. We're talking about near-death experiences, and I reached out a while back to Dr. Bruce Grayson, uh, who is the Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He's also the co-founder and the president of the International Association of Near-Death Studies. He's also the editor of the journal of near-death studies. And Dr. Grayson, he has published more than a hundred scholarly articles about near-death experiences in peer-reviewed medical journals, which is not an easy task to do. Also, three academic books, and he has addressed more than a hundred national and international professional conferences. And also, you have to note that his research for the past four decades, four decades, has focused on near-death experiences and particularly their after effects and implications. His book, which I've read, is called After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. And in, in his uh, first trade book, bringing his scientific research to a popular audience. Now, Dr. Grayson, we have you on. Welcome. Well, thank you, Gary. I'm delighted to be here with you. Absolutely. Can you speak about your experience after medical school? You had a uh, uh, a patient, a medical patient, Holly, and another later, Henry, that exposed you to the near-death experiences. Can you kind of frame that up a little bit? Sure. Well, I, I, I was raised in a, in a scientific household without any spiritual or religious tradition. So I grew up thinking that the physical world is all there is. And uh, when you die, you die. That's the end of it. That wasn't a sad idea. That was just the way life was. Mm -hmm. so I went through college and medical school without understanding the, that all our thoughts and feelings and perception are created by the brain. And when the brain is not functioning, we don't think. And in my one of my first weeks as a uh, psychiatric trainee, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. When I mm -hmm. went down to see her, she was unconscious. I could not arouse her no matter what I did. Uh, but her roommate was waiting to talk to me uh, in a different room down the hall. So I went down to talk to the roommate, spent about 15, 20 minutes talking to her, and then said goodbye to her and sent her away. Went back to see the patient who was still quite unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. When I went to see her first thing in the morning, I started to introduce myself and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. And that, that kind of stunned me because I, I thought she was unconscious the night before. I was, I was sure of it. Wow. So, so I said that to her and she said, well, not in my room. I saw you talking to Susan down the hall, and that I just couldn't make any sense of that at all. Then she went on to tell me, she saw I was confused, and told me about the conversation I had with her roommate. Everything I asked, everything that her roommate answered, where we were sitting, what we looked like, what our what our clothing was, uh, and I just, I just couldn't make any sense out of it. She even remembered your spaghetti stain on your right. pie, I believe. That's right. <laughs> 
Uh, you know, I, I didn't have time to deal with my confusion. I was there to deal with hers. Right. So I kind of pushed it out of my mind and thought, well, I'll think about this sometime in the future. And I was sure that there had to be a very simple explanation. Maybe somebody's playing a trick on me or something. And over the next couple of years, I encountered other patients of mine who had similar stories of being close to death, often from suicide attempts, and had extraordinary experiences of leaving their bodies, entering some other realm or dimension. And I, I, I assumed that it was all because they were psychiatric patients and these were a symptom of their mental illness. And then several years later, in 1975, one of my colleagues, Raymond Moody, published a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the name near-death experience and described them. And I realized for the first time that these experiences were happening to perfectly normal people all over the world under abnormal circumstances. It was not something related to mental illness at all. I still couldn't understand it as a, as a materialist at that time. I thought there has to be some simple explanation. But as a scientist, you don't run away from things you don't understand. You run towards them, trying to figure them out. So I started collecting cases and trying to figure out what's going on here. And now, almost 50 years later, I'm still trying to figure it out. You have done so much work. You actually came about this with a scientific process that you actually set out a scale that where you could interview people and then statistically break down how what kind of experiences people had and uh, and and what those experiences impact were on those people and and also your father was a, a chemist you know how did that background help you influence your research well it, it influenced it in a lot of ways one one is that uh, I place a primary emphasis on what the data show, not what I think or what I want them to show, and not necessarily what people tell us about it, but what the evidence is. Uh, the other thing my father instilled in me is that the real, the real great breakthroughs in science come from studying things we don't understand, not things we already understand very well. So when I see things I don't understand, like near-death experiences, I'm excited about trying to study them and trying to figure them out. And as you said, the, the scale that I developed was essential in helping us not only identify, but quantify the experience and see what features of the near-death experience seem to be consistent across cultures, across religions, and in fact, across the centuries. It's interesting because you did mention in your book and, and in your other research that there are, culture, there are cultural aspects to near-death experiences. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, well, the culture uh, doesn't determine what you experience, but it does determine how you understand it, how you talk about it. Ah. Most people who have a near-death experience, when you ask them to tell you about it, they say, well, I, I can't. There aren't any words to describe what happened. So we researchers say, great, tell me about it. You know, so, so we make them use metaphors to describe what happened to them. And the metaphors they come up with are those that are familiar to them from their religion or their culture. So, for example, people all over the world and going back through the centuries will describe encountering a warm, loving being of light. Mm -hmm. And people who are raised in a Judeo-Christian society may give that a label of God or sometimes Christ. But people who are raised as uh, Hindus or Buddhists will not use that term. They'll just call it a, a being of light or give it some other name. And even those who are here in the U.S. will say, I'm going to call it God so you know what I'm talking about. But this was not the God I was taught about in church. It's much bigger than that. Hmm. 
Uh, it's interesting because you had spoken about uh, at at one point you actually went to where the Dalai Lama yes is and you actually spoke to those people who happened to many of them happen to believe in uh, 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 repeated lives after death where yes. you go from one life to the other yes how, how did that uh, how did that influence you or how did that how did you speak how did you approach these people that have those thoughts yeah, it was interesting because when I talked to um, American audiences, especially uh, physicians and, and healthcare workers, they often don't know what a near-death experience is, and I have to spend some time explaining to them what exactly it is. Whereas when I talked to the Buddhist monks in uh, India, they knew all about them. Um, they were this part of their culture, uh, and they they knew actually more than most Westerners knew about it. Um, they were surprised that Westerners were even interested in it and doing research on it. I can imagine. Now, your scale that you invented and created, which you've you've refined over the years, started with about, I think it was 85 questions. Is that correct? Right, right. What I did was I gathered everything anyone had written about near-death experiences, and there were about 80-plus different features and I uh, collected all those features and I gave them to a group of near-death experiences, about 100 experiences, and said, which ones of these do you think are important in defining your near-death experience? And they whittled the list down a bit. Then I took the whittled down list and took that back to the research and said, and said here's what the near-death experiences are saying. Which ones do you think are the most important? And they whittled it down further. I went back and forth between the researchers and the experiences back and forth until I finally came down to a list of only 16 items, which was a more manageable uh, group to use. How much statistically did that encompass people who actually tried to commit suicide? Was that a larger portion of the people that experienced near-death experiences? No, it's actually a very small percentage. Ah. Uh, most people who come to close to death from um, from any uh, any cause um, don't remember anything. And mm -hmm. if if you look at people who have a documented cardiac arrest where their hearts actually stop, only about ten to twenty percent of those will remember having a near death experience. And that's typical of other ways of coming close to death. Um, now, we don't know. Um, with the largest percentage of near-death experiencers, how they came close to death. All we can look at is those who come and talk to us about it. The research that's been done has mostly been done with things like cardiac arrest, where we have a fairly clean population. Um, I've done also some research with other people like suicide attempters. And we mm -hmm. find generally about the same percent, between roughly 10 to 20% of all uh, people who have a close breast with death will have a near-death experience. How do those near-death experiences sometimes affect? Are they suicidal after they've experienced that? Does it have any affect on them? Uh, it has a very strong affect, and it's not to make them suicidal. It makes them actually less suicidal, which kind of surprised me, because the most important thing most near-death experiences say is that they are no longer afraid of, of dying, that they've lost all their fear of death. And as a psychiatrist, I'd worked with lots of people who were thinking about ending their lives, but were deterred by that because they feared something bad might happen to them if they did that. And if we tell them, well, nothing bad's going to happen, death is wonderful, will that make them more suicidal? So, of course, as a scientist, I did a study, and I interviewed everyone who's admitted to my hospital with a suicide attempt. 
And I found that slightly more than 25 or 20% had near-death experiencers. And those who had a near-death experience as a result of the suicide attempt were much less suicidal afterwards than those that had not had NDEs or near-death experiences. And when I asked them why that was, they said, well, now they understand that everything that happens to you has a meaning and a purpose. So that the problems that they had before that made them suicidal, that they still have, are no longer for them something to run away from, but something that they need to learn from and grow from. They also said that if you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living, because what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> so they, they tend to take more risks to jump into life with both feet and enjoy it as much as they can. And life becomes much more meaningful and enjoyable for them. Can you talk about Henry, which was one of your earliest patients that was suicidal? Can yeah. you use him as an example of maybe a typical or or maybe even an atypical suicidal person and how they respond to near death? Sure. Henry was a little atypical. Um, he, he was a, a farmer in rural Virginia who had lost both his parents and he was left on the farm by himself and um, he was very despondent and at some point got uh, desperate and decided he just sought to end his life. So he went to his uh, his parents' gravesite and lay down on top of the site uh, with a with a gun, uh, his rifle pointed at his chin, and lay there for a long time before thinking about it, and then finally pointed the gun at his chin, facing up, and pulled the trigger. And as soon as he did that, uh, the scene around him, the gravesite, disappeared, and he found himself in a beautiful uh, environment with a uh, you know, lovely pastoral scene. And there to his surprise, his parents came walking towards him. And at first they were very glad to see him and he was glad to see them, of course. But as they got closer, his mother looked at him and said, oh, Henry, now look what you've done. And at that point, he woke up from his near-death experience, uh, realized that he was bleeding all over the place and tried to get himself uh, uh, up. And fortunately, a gravedigger nearby saw him and ran over and um, wrapped something around his head and, and drove him to the hospital. Uh, when I saw him later in the hospital, he was not at all suicidal. And I, I, in fact, he wanted to go proselytize amongst the other patients in the hospital, tell them how wonderful life was. And when I tried to ask him what made the difference, he said, now that I know where my parents are, I feel comfortable with it. And I feel like there's a reason for my, why I'm still here. When you communicated these stories and this, this idea that people have near-death experiences to other doctors, and I've got, I've got a couple minutes here, but what, what do you think, what was their response? Well, when we first started talking about these to other doctors back in the 1980s, none of them knew what we were talking about. And they all assumed that someone was making this up, it couldn't really be happening. But now, you know, 40 years later, all doctors and nurses know about it. They've all had patients who've had near-death experiences, and they accept now that these things do happen to their patients with a fair frequency. They're not rare by any means. They still have a lot of legitimate uh, questions about what causes the near-death experience, what the ultimate meaning is, but they accept now that these are important experiences that happen to their patients that have profound after-effects on the patient's lives. 
That's incredible. I mean, do you think that that is something that maybe doctors knew, but since they had no statistical evidence, that they just kind of pushed that aside? No, I, I think I think doctors really didn't know about them. This is the kind of thing that a nurse would hear because the nurse is right there by the bedside. Ah, oh, yeah. And the nurse may tell the, the patient, well, don't tell the doctor about that. He'll send you to the psychiatrist. Right. <laughs> Which would be you, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back so I can get a good another good set of questions here. But the bottom line is... Um, I would like to talk in a little bit about the, the mind and the brain, the connection sure. between the two, because they're very, very, very different. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come right back. Sure. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Dr. Connie Mariano is a groundbreaker. She was the White House physician to three presidents, toured the world on Air Force One, and has had countless amazing experiences. The one thing that life didn't prepare her for was becoming a widow. After losing her beloved husband, John, in a tragic accident, Dr. Connie joined the one million women who were widowed in the United States each year. While her journey as a widow has been one of intense grief and sorrow, it has also been one of extraordinary growth and rebirth. Now, Dr. Connie is sharing what she's learned, joined by her knowledgeable guests to help anyone struggling with this deeply personal and often lonely journey of their own. Tune into The Widow's Walk, Thursdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Grayson, uh, who's a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Uh, He's got enormously uh, long background in near-death experience studies, uh, almost 50 years. Uh, Dr. Grayson, I was uh, thinking about this. I often tell people we're a, we're a soul living a human life. Yeah. When you think of the mind-brain connection, 
how, when you look at near-death experiences, how do you, what is the scope that you be, you view that through and what is the defining difference of a mind-brain connection? Well, I was taught in medical school that the mind is what the brain does and that all our thoughts and feelings and perceptions are created by the brain. And if that's true, then when your brain is, is, is not functioning very well when it's going offline, then you shouldn't be able to have elaborate experiences. And most people who have a near-death experience say it's the most vivid experience they've ever had in their lives. Mm. So clearly, if they're talking about something that really happened, it didn't happen because of the brain. So is there some other model for the race relationship between the mind and the brain? Because clearly there is some. We know that when you get intoxicated, that affects your thinking. When you have a stroke or get hit on the head, that changes how you think. So there's some connection. But what is it if it's not causal? And there's another model that says that the brain is not the cause of the of our thoughts, of our mind, but an interpreter or a transmitter of it. And this mm. goes back to, to actually Hippocrates uh, 2,000 years ago, right. who wrote that, that the, the brain is the messenger of the mind. Mm. People throughout the centuries have used different models to explain this. And the one that, that's used most currently is uh, essentially like a... a a receiver like a television receiver or a radio receiver there's thousands of, of radio stations being broadcast to us and if you tried to listen to them all at once uh, you wouldn't be able to understand any of them but what you, what the radio receiver does is tune in on one particular frequency and filter out all the others so you can understand that one station and the idea is that the brain does the same thing with the mind the mind has access to this huge panoply of, of consciousness but it's not really relevant to us. It's only confusing. There's too much for us to handle. So one of the things the brain does is to receive these thoughts from the mind, wherever that is, and filter out those that are not important to us. Now the brain, evolving as a physical organ like the rest of us, is there to help us survive the physical world. So it wants to let in consciousness that has something to do with finding food, shelter, a mate, avoiding predators. You don't need to encounter deceased loved ones or a deity to do those things. So the brain normally filters out those types of consciousness and just lets in the ones that are relevant to the physical world. This isn't surprising because we know that the brain has many of these filters. Uh, for one thing, starting with your eyes and your ears, you don't see all the light that's available to you. We just see a very narrow range of the electromagnetic spectrum, which we call the the, um, the visible spectrum. You don't right. see infrared and ultraviolet. They're not important to us. Uh, so we just filter those out. And there's something in the brain called the thalamocortical loop, which limits what input gets to your frontal cortex, the part that thinks. Uh, right. Right now, you're listening to my voice. It right. doesn't matter to you what I look like. So... Without understanding, this thalamocortical loop tells the thalamus to tamp down the visual input and focus mostly on the auditory input. So it's it's constantly revising what input gets to your brain or to your frontal cortex and uh, changes it according to what you need to do at the moment. So the mind in a near-death experience actually escapes the filters of the body that's right. When the brain starts shutting down, one of the first things to be, to be affected is this filtering function, which is a very sophisticated function. And when that starts failing, other parts of consciousness tend to creep through. 
like a sense of being in this larger environment that's larger than the physical world that may include other entities that aren't physical. It's interesting. My my grandpa was one of the, the second person to receive a heart valve, a manufactured heart valve in Florida in the uh-huh. 70s, in the early 70s. And uh, I can't remember the name of the doctor who's very famous who invented that. But um, he claimed that after, during the surgery, when they stopped his heart, that he did have a vision of interacting with other people in some kind of capacity, very blissful capacity in heaven. He didn't identify any, he identified it as heaven and he identified it as people he did not know. Right, right. But they were people he interacted with while he was there. What do you think about that? Well, if, you know, something like that, we can't verify it in any way. Uh, On rare occasions, when people will encounter someone they know or sometimes someone has been dead for a while, that entity will apparently tell them something that no one else could have known. Um, and in that circumstance, we can try to verify whether the information is accurate or not. We don't know, know how they got it. Uh, many people in a near-death experience claim that they encountered deceased loved ones. And that's often dismissed by skeptics by saying, well, that's, of course, what you expect to happen. You know, you, it's wishful thinking. And that may explain some of these apparent encounters. But there are a number of well-documented cases now, some going back to the first century, but a lot of contemporary ones, in which people see a deceased person that no one knew had died, so that no one was expecting to see them. Wow. And when they see that person, how do you think their brain registers that memory as the mind reclaims the body? That's a great question, Gary. I don't think we have an answer to that. We don't know where memories are stored, period. We know what parts of the brain are involved in retrieving memories. Mm-hmm. But if these memories are stored in the mind, that may not be somewhere in the physical brain. We're not really sure about that. That is such an interesting question. You you did some work on the temporal lobe. You know, yes. It, yes. What, what kind of out, what what came out of that for you? There's been this this theory that the temporal lobe is involved in the sense of being in your body or out of your body. Uh, there are some types of seizures that are related with temporal lobe seizures, which people have and uh, often have a uh, an out of body experience. Um, that was a theory, at least. Mm-hmm. And there have been studies recently where people have tried to stimulate electrically that part of the brain and try to induce people to leave their bodies. And what they actually get is something that's a very bizarre type of bodily hallucination that people may say, I feel like uh, my legs are getting shorter. I feel like I'm falling off the table or something like that, which they say goes, oh, well, that's kind of like a proto out of body experience, but it's not really. So and- we did a study, we did a study of people who had seizure disorders and we interviewed them about what their experience was like during the seizure. And we found that about 7% had some type of experience that was at least remotely like an out-of-body experience. Um, there were one or two who said, yes, I left my body and I could see it from above it. Most people just said, well, I kind of lost track of my body or I felt like I might have been out of it. But when we looked at where the seizures were in the body, they were not particularly in the temporal lobe. 
they were all over the brain, on left side, on the right side, in the frontal, in the parietal, in the, you know, all over the place. So there was no connection between this out-of-body sensation and the temporal lobe by itself. When people talk about floating above their body, especially during surgery, do they experience any feeling of what's going on? Often they feel disconnected from the body, like they're not emotionally connected to it anymore. And sometimes they're very surprised to look down and recognize the body as being theirs. They may see, oh, that's, that's my ring on the finger or something like that. Right. But they're often very surprised to, to find themselves out of their bodies for the first time. And when they return, is that something that they openly often express or do a lot of people you have to poke and prod to get that information out of them? Well, it varies. And back when the, in the early 80s, when we started doing this research, people were not very willing to talk about these things. Yeah. Now they're much more willing because now everyone knows about them. Uh, even Homer Simpson's had a near-death experience. Most people <laughs> uh, So it's, uh, people are very free to, to, to mention, yes, and then I left my body, you know, and they, they may describe what they saw. And often something that might have been expected. Oh, I saw the doctors wearing green scrub suits, you know. But sometimes they report very surprising things, like a nurse having mismatched shoelaces or something like that, hmm. which, which the doctors can later confirm, yes, that was really accurate. Do people often uh, talk about traumatic death where they've had near-death experiences or people that have had a traumatic death experience you know sudden un, unthought you know did, didn't know it was going to happen and then they came back to their bodies have you interviewed people like that yes 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 we see that a lot the people who have um who seem to be in good health but then have a sudden unexpected heart attack or people who are in a automobile accident or fall when they're mountain climbing uh, or get electrocuted a lot of people who were struck by lightning end up having near-death experiences. And they generally have the same types of near-death experiences as other people do. Mm. You know, you also uh, I mentioned just earlier that you had done work with people with seizures. Yes. What did you conclude from that? Because seizures are, boy, people go through, when they go through that, that's, it's a very dramatic experience. It is, it is. And, and most people don't remember anything from a seizure um but a fair number do uh and what they what they do remember is usually something very vague like um i, I felt i was i was smelling something unusual or I, I heard some ringing noise and it's the very rare ones who can say they have a concrete memory like oh i, I think i was above my body looking down um and as i said before it's not connected to any one particular part of the brain which was kind of surprising what is your thoughts? Because this is an amazingly popular trend for, for the past at least five years where people are just wanting to desperately do these psychedelic forms of therapy where they basically lock themselves up, they take a shroom or something, and then they, they go off into some, some kind of escape. Do you think that correlates to a near-death experience? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I wouldn't recommend people going off by themselves and doing it because there are some some bad side effects from it, and people have terrifying trips from some of these drugs. But there are some places that are doing good research, Johns Hopkins University in the U.S. and Imperial College in London. 
that are doing controlled research with drugs like psilocybin, psychedelic mm-hmm. drugs, mm-hmm. Uh, under very uh, comforting and, and welcoming situations where there's you know, in a room with um, dim lighting and soft music and someone there to, to guide you in case you have trouble with it. And what they're finding is that they often have what we call mystical experiences, which are somewhat like near-death experiences. And they often have very profound after effects. People become much more spiritual after that, which by which they mean much more connected to other people, to the natural world, to the universe, to the divine. It's not the same as a near-death experience, but it's similar to it. In fact, there I know some people who had both a psychedelic drug trip and a near-death experience. Oh, they really? Say, they say, yeah. They say, well, it's, it's not the same. One person said to me, um, on LSD, I saw heaven, but in my near-death experience, I was in heaven. Wow. It's, it's like another, another person told me it was like the difference between being, being in combat and watching a war movie. You may use the same words to describe both, but no one would confuse the two things, watching a movie and being in combat. Imagine, you, you know, the people just uh, yearn for those. And actually, it's strange because uh, I get a lot of very uh, people that are retired that are very interested in the psychedelic, that type of treatment. They want to, I guess, because they were born in the 60s or right, right around <laughs> with their teenage years during that. <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of good research going on now with looking at therapeutic uh, uses of, of psychedelics. And they're being used now for to try to, to use for depression, for post-traumatic stress disorder, for death anxiety, with some results. Um, the, the data aren't very good yet, but they're very promising what we have so far. What do you think it's offering them? Is it an escape from their problems, another view? Do you think near-death experiences do that? They give you a such a, a profound uh, perspective that you finally have answers to something you've always wondered. That's that they do. They do do that. Um, they may give you answers, or they may feel like you don't really need answers. We don't need to be in control of everything all the time. Uh, that that the universe is a friendly place. It's okay to not have all the answers. Um, but I think uh, one of the one of the advantages of of these uh, psychedelic drugs is that we have some control over it. With the near death experience, you don't know when it's going to happen or where. But with a with a drug trip, you can determine when it's going to happen, and that opens up the possibility of doing research on how to produce these experiences or what the effects of these experiences may be on the body. You know. Um... Probably two, more than two years ago, I did an interview with a, a gentleman, a, a, another doctor, regarding uh, reincarnation. And what he was suggesting is that people, despite their gender, will move from one life to another. And you went to, you, you, once again, you were in India with, with the Dalai Lama's probably right. followers and groups and monks and all that stuff. What is your thoughts about that, that reincarnation, the idea that people move beyond and go to another life? Uh, I don't have a good answer for it. Um, where I work at the University of Virginia, we've collected some 2,500 cases of very young children, two, three, four years old, uh, who spontaneously start talking about a previous life. And in about half of those cases, we've been able to actually track down from the details they tell us who the person they claimed to have been in the past life was and corroborate that some of their information was accurate. 
I don't know whether that means they're reincarnated or whether they're just getting the information some other way. Um, it was really weird because after that interview, he mentioned that you can actually know who you were if you have enough detail in a previous life. He mentioned to me that, that he said also that people travel in pods where people will play different roles in different lifespans with each other. You may be the father, you may be the daughter, you may be the cousin, but you, you still will have some history with the soul. But And this is not your work, but what was interesting is he he mentioned, he sent me a picture of himself. He said in his previous life it was John Adams. And what was really weird is that my ancient relative, not ancient, four generations back is Abigail Smith, who married John uh, Adams. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty, that was after the show. Right, right. <laughs> that set me back. All right, uh, Dr. Grayson, we're going to take one more break, and then we're going to come right back. We're going to talk a little bit about trauma and mental health associated with near-death experiences and go into life reviews. So let's take a quick break, and we'll come right back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Stuck in a state of being that holds us back from creating the life we truly desire. Regardless of your own blocks or limitations, imagine an easier way to get unstuck and move forward with your life. On this show, Jason Hopkins shares his practical next right step approach that will move you toward the life you really want. You too can be steps from getting the abundance, love, support, and fulfillment your heart desires. Get unstuck. Move forward with your life with Jason Hopkins. Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're so fortunate to have Dr. Bruce Grayson. He's written a wonderful book. It's called After a Doctor's Explores What Near-Death Experiences Real about li- Reveal About Life and Beyond. Uh, Dr. Grayson, you had mentioned in your book how 
trauma and mental health are also often associated with near-death experiences. Can you talk about that a little bit, how that influences near-death experiences? Sure. I, 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 as a psychiatrist, uh, I was concerned about the connection between mental illness and near-death experiences because they're both situations in which uh, your sense of reality is not the same as what everyone else's is. So it's natural to think there might be some connection. But the more we looked into it, the less we found. Uh, for example, if you look at uh, the incidence of near-death experiences among people who have diagnosed mental illness, is the same as it is among people who don't have psychiatric diagnoses. Wow. Likewise, if you look at people who have a psychiatric diagnosis who are being treated for mental illness, they have the same proportion of, of near-death experiences as people who aren't being treated. So there seems to be no connection between near-death experiences and uh, mental illness. We also looked at specifically post-traumatic stress disorder, because that's another thing that happens to you when you've come close to death. Absolutely. And what we found is that in both post-traumatic stress and in near-death experiences, uh, people tend to relive the experience over and over again. However, with post-traumatic stress, that's an unpleasant experience. You don't want to relive it, and you tend to do things to try to stop yourself from reliving it. Whereas with a near-death experience, it's a pleasant experience, and people like to share about it and, and re-experience it. We found that, in fact, if you have a near-death experience at the time of a traumatic event, that provides some protection against developing a full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll be darned. You know, you had mentioned that life reviews often are somewhat, some statistically, a not a large, but in a good percent of people experience a life review in their near-death experiences. Can you talk about that? Sure. About about 40% of people who have a, a, a near-death experience will have a review of their entire lives. And they describe that differently because it's all being described metaphorically. But essentially, they say they relive every event in their lives. And often this is a matter of decades, and it's taking place in a second or a fraction of a second. But they say it's, it's incredibly vivid, more vivid than when it actually was happening. For example, one person told me that when he relived an event from his childhood, he could actually count the number of mosquitoes flying around his head, and he couldn't have done that when he was a child. Now, they also can go ahead. actually know the thoughts of people that they were interacting with in yes. their past. Yes. In, in, not in all uh, life reviews, but in some, they re-experience things not only through their own eyes, but through the eyes of someone else as well. Um, one person I knew... Uh, who was in his in his 30s when he had his near-death experience, when a truck he was working under fell and, and crashed his chest. Um, he remembered being a teenager and driving down the street and a, uh, a drunk man wandered out in front of his truck and he slammed on his brakes and rolled down his window and started yelling at the man. And the man, being quite drunk, reached his hand in the window and slapped this, this teenager in the face. And that was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he got out of the truck and started beating the man up. Well, in his life review, he experienced that through his own eyes, uh, feeling the adrenaline rush and, and the embarrassment of being slapped by this old drunk. But he also experienced through the eyes of the drunk man, uh, feeling the, the, the 32 blows of this fist in his face. Now, he couldn't have told you that there are 32 until he had the life review. 
He felt his teeth going through his lower lip. He felt his nose getting bloodied. And he felt the embarrassment of being beaten up by this teenager. Uh, and he came back from that near-death experience realizing we're all in this together. What you do to someone else, you're doing to yourself as well. Which leads a lot of near-death experiences to the golden rule, which is part of every religion we have. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. But for the near-death experiences, it's not a guideline we're supposed to follow. It's a law of nature that they experience themselves in the NDE. When you help others, you help yourself. And when you hurt them, you hurt yourself. That is so interesting. You know, are there common features? Is there any like rock solid common features of people that have near death experiences? Uh, no, there were not. We've done a lot of work trying to figure that out. Uh, people of all uh, races, of both genders, of all ages, of all personality traits, of all religious backgrounds, of all degrees of religiosity, they all have the same types of near death experiences. Do you think a person's backstory in their life and their life experiences influence how the near-death experience is experienced? Well, it certainly influences how they describe it to other people and what, the, what use they make of it afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who have uh, violent professions. For example, they're career military officers or police officers who, after a near-death experience, can't go back to that career. They just can't abide the idea of, of hurting someone else. Uh, so they end up often leaving that career and going at some, uh, usually a helping profession, healthcare, uh, teaching, social work, clergy. Uh, I've also known people who were in cutthroat businesses who came back from a near-death experience saying it no longer makes sense to get ahead at someone else's expense. So they end up either changing how they do their work or leaving that job completely and going into some other, other line of work entirely. Wow. Have you had like people that are maybe fire police, military that have been in action in a first responder experience where they've done a life review and near-death experiences and actually been able to see the other side of it, of uh, what they were doing? Yeah, yeah. There was one first fellow I, I, I knew who, um, he was in the Air Force as a fireman, and he was called with, with, to see a, an airplane that had burst into fire on the runway. And as he was there trying to put it out, it exploded again, and it knocked him back, and uh, he was totally knocked unconscious and had shrapnel all over his body. And he had a near-death experience at that point and left his body and could see the people working on him as well. At first, he didn't know it was, it was his body that they were working on. Um, but then he recognized that he was, that, that was the, uh, the fire protection suit he was wearing. Um, and he had a life, very elaborate life review that included going back to childhood and going up to that very moment when he was there putting out the fire. That is amazing. <laughs> you know, in your experience, the skeptics of people and the peers that have been skeptical of you, how have you received that over the years? Because you've done this for five decades. Right, right. Well, I, I understand what they're doing because I started out as a skeptic as well. And I understand the reasons why this is so hard to, to, to believe, uh, but I'm convinced now from all this research that it is a real experience and I don't have an answer for it. Uh, I do believe that the old materialistic explanation we were given that the mind is what the brain does, just does not explain anything. Uh, it certainly doesn't explain near-death experiences and there are other experiences as well that it, that it can't explain. Um, 
but I don't know what the real answer is. It seems to be that the brain, that the mind is somewhere outside of the brain. What it is and where it is, I have no idea. Your father, being a chemist, he must have been very concerned that you were going down this path. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> he did not live long enough to, to see me get into this field, uh, but he was concerned when I when I uh, went into psychiatry because he didn't quite understand what the mind had to do with anything. Um, uh, he, yeah, he, he, as far as he was concerned, the physical world is all there is. If you can't describe it in terms of the periodic table, then it didn't didn't exist. And the idea that thoughts had some power over our, our bodies just made no sense to him at all. How do you think heaven, the belief in God, correlates with a near-death experience for many people? Well, whether you believe in God or in heaven or anything else, has no relationship to whether you're going to have a near-death experience when you come close to death. Now, I will say that after the near-death experience, people do become much more spiritual. They do not become much more religious. Um, they may say that they feel comfortable in any house of worship of any denomination or just out in nature, but they feel connected to something divine in the universe. Um, they don't become more dedicated to any particular one religion. Interesting. You know, what are some of the things that you would like in all the work that you've done that you would like people to understand about near-death experiences? Well, the first is that they're very common. Um, most studies have shown that about 5% of the general population has had a near-death experience. That's one out of every 20 people. So someone in your workplace, in your family, in your classroom has probably had a near-death experience. And then there are, there are normal experiences. They're not... Um, mental illness, they occur to normal people under abnormal situations. And they lead to profound and long-lasting after-effects that really can't be ignored. They also suggest that the mind and the brain are not the same thing. And if that's true, then it opens the possibility that the mind can continue after the brain has stopped functioning. And finally, most near-death experiences come back convinced that we are all interconnected and that we're all part of the same thing, which is essentially what a lot of religions tell us. Have any of your children or relatives picked up the torch in some of the work you do? Um, some do. Um, some have become quite spiritual. Not Again, not religious, but more spiritually attuned. Um, but, you know, again, chemistry runs in my family, and a lot of my family are still diehard chemists, materialists. This is interesting, but uh, not really relevant to them. So, you know, working with that, you've had people that have sought you out uh, that have had near-death experiences. Is that correct? It is, yes. How And how did they seek you? They actually went to your home? Well, some did, but most just email me now, or they used to, in the old days, write me letters or telephone me. Uh, and I will say that most of the early work on near-death experiences, mine and everyone else's, was based on people who came forward and said, let me tell you about what happened to me. And in retrospect, we were getting a biased sample by doing that. Uh, all we were hearing were the, the beautiful, blissful experiences. We weren't hearing any unpleasant ones. And later on, when we started doing studies of everyone who was admitted to the hospital with a cardiac arrest or some other cause of death, we started hearing that there were other types of experiences as well that people weren't as willing to talk about. And there are a small number of near-death experiences that are experiences being unpleasant. 
Is that correlated to more of a hellish type of experience, or is it correlated to just living on Earth? <laughs> Which can be yeah, yeah. pleasant. <laughs> yeah, they're not really they're not really hellish per se. I have heard occasionally a hellish experience from someone who had that type of a cultural cultural background, who was either Roman Catholic or fundamentalist Protestant. But most unpleasant experiences sound just like the blissful ones, but they're experienced as unpleasant. And those are usually people who are very much in control of their lives, very obsessional, don't like being out of control. And they experience the lack of control in the near-death experience as terrifying. And they often fight against that and try to get back into control. And at some point, they may get exhausted and just give up. And as soon as they do, as soon as they stop fighting, it becomes blissful. You know, I, I often say that Axis One diagnoses, man-made diagnoses are built of symptoms of people needing to control things they can't control. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, your father did play a huge role in your life, and he had something to do with the invention of tef- Teflon. Is that correct? Right, right. He didn't invent it, but he got into the very early days of it and did a lot of work with their various uses of it. And he would spray Teflon on your mom's frying pans? Right. This is long before it became commercially available, but he would try it and see what, what worked and what didn't work. And it took <laughs> a while so to, 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 get, to get one that really worked. We had a lot of uh, mis, misfirings in my house. I bet you did. <laughs> um you know, in looking at the work, are you still conducting any particular type of research in near-death experiences currently? Uh, yes, I'm getting uh, on in years, and I'm looking at the end of my career, so I'm thinking more and more about the practical applications of this. And as a psychiatrist, I'm concerned about how it affects people individually. So we're doing a lot of research now on people who have difficulty returning to a, quote, normal life after a near-death experience, what mm-hmm. problems they're having, what type of help is helpful to them, what type is, isn't helpful to them. And we're also looking at um, healthcare workers and what their attitudes are towards near-death experiences and whether they feel uh, knowledgeable enough to talk with patients about them and what they need in order to make that more, more readily available to them. Dr. Grayson, we're at the end of our time, but I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. You are so insightful and your body of work is is some of the most important work on this uh, near-death experiences that there is out there. Um, Thank you, it's been delightful talking to you. And I truly, truly loved your book. Um, once again, his book is is called After a Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. And you can actually get that as an audio book, uh, which is how I did it while I was doing my Peloton rides. Um, so, <laughs> Dr. Grayson, thank you so much. Uh, I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday. Thank you for for being here. Thank you, Gary. Okay. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. We'll be right back.